This week's episode is sponsored by Onyx Backcountry. Onyx Backcountry is basically a guidebook in your pocket. It's that simple. Uh, slope shading, offline maps, routes, kind of has everything you need. My favorite part about Onyx Backcountry is that you can use it on your computer, log in, dial it all in. If you're like me, I like to do things on my computer, not always on my phone. But the best part is you can save the things from your computer, and then when you open your phone, they're there, offline, no internet needed when you're in the woods. So go to onyxmaps.com, save an added 20% with promo code out of bounds, all lowercase, all one word, onyxmaps.com, out of bounds to save 20%. Uh, the other cool thing that it's still November, so out of every membership that you purchase or subscription that you purchase, Onyx Backcountry is donating $10 to an avalanche center, avalanche research center uh, in the month of November. So, I mean, I think the subscription is 30 bucks for the year, save 20%, 10% of that gets donated. It's basically free, people. And the thing with it, it's not, this isn't a luxury. This isn't like a, like, oh, I hate having tech in the woods. This could save your life. This could get you back to your car. This could keep you off a very dangerous slope. And I, it's important. I don't know. It's There's no excuse for safety in the woods. So onyxmaps.com, onyx backcountry. Wow, that was the first time I ever did an ad read prior to me babbling. So let me know what you think about that. As always, I am your host, at Mr. Adam X. This is the Pursuit Podcast, and you're listening on the Out of Collective. People are skiing, like actually skiing now. It's happening. I'm not. I'm scared. We're skiing on grass. My knees are terrified. People in Utah, you're skiing on sharks. Get out of there. It's terrifying. I love it. I love to see all the photos. I love to see all the videos. Keep tagging us. Tag out a podcast. Tag at Mr. NMX. It's so fun to watch. I think maybe I'll get out there this weekend if we get enough snow, but... I don't know. I'm just scared. Also, if I sound groggy, it's because I am. Uh, I think a troll moved into my my nostril passage, and it just lives there now and charges money for um, things to come in and out of my nose, including air. So there's your too much information for the week. My hot take for the week. Man, I didn't even think about a hot take for the week. Man, totally unprepared for my hot take of the week. Let me think about this. I'm going to pause this real quick. Okay, this is my hot take. I've got it. I think ski boarding revolutionized skiing. And I don't think it gets enough credit. And I'm not talking about Solomon Snowblades. I'm talking about line ski boards. Mike Nick... Jay Leventhal, 
they changed it. Skiboarding was in the uh, was in the Olympics. Was in the Mount Snow X Games, and I believe a nine hundred, a Liu Kang nine hundred, was like the best trick there. So look it up. Tell me I'm wrong. But skiboarding is the reason we ski how we ski now. And I don't want to take away any credit from snowboarding because clearly snowboarding was way cooler and still is super rad. But yeah, skiboarding revolutionized the ski industry and you'll never, that'll never, you'll never take that from me. My guest this week is Zahan. People just call him Z. Uh, he's a self-proclaimed dreamer, a skier, a guide, an activist, dare I say, an activist. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's I'm going to say activist. I don't know if he'll like that, but I'm saying he'll like that. Uh, he is owner-operator of the Samsara Experience, and it's a coaching program, which... You know, we talk about coaching programs and whatever, but the way Z speaks about this program and the way he speaks about our bodies and how we need to be in nature and part of nature, it's important. And he had so many good takes on this podcast that I need to re-listen so I can write them down. I wrote a lot of notes during the podcast, which I always try to do. But Z was a true professional. His team was amazing to work with. And I'm really excited for you guys to listen. So I'll keep it short and sweet. Here's my episode with Z. Uh, right on, Adam. Thanks for having me. Psyched to be here. Um, for everybody out there, my name's Z. Um, I'm a Jackson-based mountain guide and coach. Um, I'm also a dad and family man. Um and yeah, looking forward to just having this hour to dive into it with you. Do you consider yourself, cause you, I mean, a lot of everyone I interview has a lot of, wears a lot of hats, but like you're a surfer, you're a skier, you're an activist, you're a guide, you're a family man. How does one manage that? Well, I, I manage most of those things, but I'm definitely not a surfer. I wish I was. Um, <laughs> The, um, on my very first baby steps towards uh, learning to read the ocean, but I am loving it. Um, but how do, how does one manage all those things? Well, you know, I mean, for me, I'm in my 40s now, so I've had a lot of time to figure out those different hats. And at different times in my life, they play different roles, right? So there was, um, you know, for most of my adult life in my 20s and especially my 30s, my whole life was so driven by my career as a mountain guide and balancing that with raising children. And I think um, even just those two things was such an all-consuming chapter of my life, a wonderful chapter, a great balance there between having my own pursuits and my own uh, dreams and athletic ambitions, um, which I also got paid for, were a part of my work life, and then balancing that with my lifelong passion to be a dad and to raise children just something that's always been kind of woven into how I saw myself in the world and what I wanted to do. So that was really a, a period that was really characterized by those two things. And now guiding is playing a smaller role in my life. And so much more of my work is really focused around coaching and training athletes. 
Um, and my kids are bigger now too. Uh, I got high school kids. They're both teenagers. So, um, you know, the time demands do change because they become so much more independent and they have their own budding lives. So you're really more like on the outside knocking, trying to get in. Uh, whereas when they're little, it's kind of the other way around. You can barely get a moment. Um, so yeah, I guess those are some thoughts about how all those things have bounced out over time. Do you think you're guiding? Cause I find that so interesting guiding your, you know, you're putting other people's lives at risk, ideally, and bringing people into situations and making them feel safe. Does the decision-making on guiding change once you have children? Yes, I think so. I think the decision-making in all things in life changes when you have children. At least it did for me because so much of my life um, outside of the home revolved around risk and like choosing risk and, and really falling in love with high-risk environments that really required you to be on point because the environment is like asking everything of you and you really have to rise to that occasion. Um, so it's very engaging, but how you engage with uncertainty is really feels emotionally so different as a parent versus, uh, you know, as a young individual. But for me, you know, I had both my kids in my twenties. Um, Kim and I, we couldn't wait to really get started building a family. We just knew that was our thing and what we wanted to do. So, I mean, I had kids at a time when I was still figuring out who I was and I do very much remember the months, the very first season after I had my oldest child, Alyosha, who's 16 now, um, how my perception of the mountains and what I was really out there looking for, it really changed. And it really did back me way back off of um, that like hunger for high risk skiing. But the truth is, for me, is that that was a period. And um, because I was still young, um, that hunger did come back. And as I kind of settled into life as a dad, and um, I really found a way to make peace between doing things that were adventurous and also having a family. And that's very different than how it is now. So in a sense, I guess the answer to your question is like, yes, it does change when you become a parent, but it just keeps changing. It's just, it seems like it's always changing, you know? And really actually, as a little segue, I feel that that is one of the most important um, mental aspects of the game for me of being a guide is that it's really important to never get married to your perception of risk or your risk tolerance and as you grow in that, you know, and, and in society and people start to have expectations of you, you're this kind of a guide, you do this kind of skiing and climbing, then those expectations, they become a part of your identity. And you start to see yourself as like, well, I'm known for taking this kind of risk. And I think that um, being a guide and, and living a life in the mountains is so dangerous as it is. It's so important to have the freedom and to maintain the freedom to choose how you interact with the mountains and how you engage with risk all the time. And I always say to myself, and I say to like younger guys that I've uh, mentored is like, if you wake up one day and that same way of rolling in the mountains doesn't feel good, just feel free to change that. Um, you're, it, you know, being a guide is not like being an accountant. You don't just like, you know, stumble your way 
to the desk and just start smashing the keys and get on with your day. It's like what you're doing requires judgment and you should always feel free to rewrite that story and to accept that life changes. And as you get older, your perception of risk changes and roll with that. Don't be stuck in being the risk taker that you were earlier. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that and you say it to other guides because, you know, you think about learning how to be a guide and like the, the courses you have to take and the experience you have to have. But that's something that like really only comes from experience. So you telling other guides and other people and clients that change is good in any setting, you know, is, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting take because you think about that, like life doesn't prepare you for life sometimes or like guide school doesn't you're not like it's one school but like being a guide doesn't necessarily prepare you for being a guide forever that's so true that, that's so true yeah that's so on point i really agree with that for me that came from my earliest mentor rich rinaldi who was a guide and owned and still owns uh a ski touring backcountry guide service on teton pass and um, before I ever got paid to guide while I was mentoring under him, he, uh, he used to always say, never be afraid to reinvent yourself. And that was something he would just repeat and really drive home to me all the time. And, you know, as a guide at that stage, I was in my mid twenties. I was like, reinvent myself. Like, I, I, I don't even understand what that means yet. I'm just trying to invent myself the first time over. I'm just becoming a, a young adult, you know? Um, but now looking back on that, I'm like, that is such important wisdom that, um, you know, just don't be afraid to reinvent yourself. Don't be stuck in the identity that um, you had, even if that identity was awesome, right? Like I look back on periods of my career now that were so exciting and so fun and really contributed so much to who I've become today. But it doesn't mean that I still have to be that way. And I, it doesn't mean that just because it was great then that it would be great now. Like I can look back and say like, that's just so much more risk than I've got the appetite for now. Do you ever miss the old life or do you think you've just evolved into smarter decisions? Or do you ever think you were just like, I guess the question is, were you ever like a wild risk taker or you've just kind of like settled into a more comfortable place? Yeah, that's a great question that I feel like I can't even answer by myself because like what we perceive as a wild risk taker is so much in relationship to how society and what kind of a society you're a part of, you know, like for me, growing up in the mountains, growing up, I mean, as an adult, I didn't grow up here as a child, but growing up in the mountains, in the Tetons, like this culture is so advanced in terms of its culture of risk and skill and courage in the mountains so i don't look back on like what were my highest kind of risk exposure periods as being totally wild because so many of my friends and um colleagues and other guides were doing equally wild things or wilder um but when you compare them to how we behave in society at large, yeah, I think that most people on the outside would say, like, yeah, that's, that's out there risk-taking. Uh, I mean, I get that. So um, 
I mean, I think by nature, I am probably more cautious and more calculated. I'm quite analytical. I really want to like understand. I want to be able to like wrap my head around and like articulate and speak to what I think is going on. Um, so by nature, I, I tend to be more analytical than just like totally driven by the hunger for just a, a really wild out there experience. Yeah, I think, you know, not that this is about me, but a lot of my risks were just taken out of pure ignorance. I don't think I knew the situation I was in 10 years ago versus as you get more, you know, the more educated you get, the more you know, the more you clearly know of the danger you you are or are not in. So that's when I look back on it. I'm like, that was, I got lucky, fortunately, and I got out, but like, I shouldn't have been there. Which is like, and I didn't grow up a guide. I'm not a guide and I am no, nowhere near an expert, but you know, risk can be, when you look back on risk, it can just be pure ignorance, which I think is important to note sometimes. Yes. I think that the way that we see risk in the moment and the way that we'll see it 10 years from now is definitely going to change, right? Like when you get to that 30,000 foot view level and you look back on your life, even as a young adult looking back on your childhood or as a you know middle-aged adult looking back on your on your early adulthood you always see it with greater perspective and i look back on you know peak periods in in my career i'm like wow i really am surprised that i did get comfortable with that much risk and uncertainty even as somebody who's just really dedicated to being a dad and, and to surviving his career. But I look back, I'm like, wow, there's definitely some, yeah, you could call it ignorance, but in a sense, it's just like, it's just the way life evolves. And, you know, like it's not truly ignorance so much, I think as it's just, you know, what maturity and, and stacking all those experiences, it does change your perspective. And so you look back and you're like, wow, I can't believe that's where I was then. But on the other hand, I'm like, I'm so glad I was there then because I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't had those periods in my life. And they were so exciting and, and engaging and so demanding, right? Like you're like, I'm here. I've got to do my best because nothing but my best is going, is going to be enough. So I look back on them fondly. I just, I wouldn't be in the same place now. Yeah, it's a and good you know, that's a that's a good take and a great way to view that. I think it's the only way to yeah. view it. Um, segwaying a little bit. You've been doing this for 20 plus years at this point. Right. We can say plus or minus yeah, about 20 years, really. Um, yeah, about 20 years. I mean, I grew up in the Alps, so I did grow up playing around the mountains for sure. But it wasn't really till we moved to Teton Valley, Idaho, that I like fully sunk my teeth in and, and just said, hey, this is what my life's going to be about. That was about 20 years ago. How much has social media changed it for you as one, just owning a business, being a guide? And also my, my segue really is you've become a voice. Do you mean like how much has social media changed the, the mountain game? I just mean it. How much has it changed you as a guide, athlete, business owner? Like you having this a voice, basically. This, you know, thirty years yeah. ago, a guide or an athlete didn't necessarily had a have a voice, and if they did, it was on a VHS 
on this little, you know, on hopefully at a movie premiere, right? And now you have you all day, every day, you have a voice, you have you have an outlet, you have like almost, and maybe you don't feel like you have this, but almost a responsibility to to speak your mind and say what you feel is important. Or maybe you don't at all, and you're just like, it's social media, and I just throw stuff up there, and who cares? No, I don't feel that way. You're, what you said earlier is definitely true. I mean, you're right. Like That's probably another one of those things that we can't really perceive right now. Maybe 15 years from now, we'll look back on the transition of, you know, because I was, oh, I don't know, maybe like in my early 30s when social media kind of hit the scene. And maybe in 10 years, I'll have a better perspective on like the before and afterlife of um, social media and how it's changed us. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it has probably transformed so many aspects of um, my life and, and thinking in ways I don't even realize yet. But to your point about like having a voice, I mean, I do love that. You know, I'm a very like values driven person. Like that's something I've really realized about myself in the last year. Like I have certain beliefs about the world and those beliefs just drive everything I do. And a lot of other things that I think people might feel bound to, like, I don't know, doing popular things or doing things that make money or doing things because that's how society works. I'm like, I don't really give a shit about a lot of that. I really just like my goal in life is to advance my values. Um, I want to, you know, I mean, here's the thing, right? And this is the thing for all of us is like, we're all coming to terms more and more in 2021 with just how privileged we are and just how um, much we've taken for granted as a part of our lives that is just not a part of everybody else's life. And so for me, part of that realization is like, well, then you've got to go out and you've got to throw down a ladder. You've got to be the kind of person that is going to elevate all of those other people who by simple luck of the draw, just didn't get the same opportunities and shot at life that you did. And as a person of color in a very white industry, I just love the opportunity to um, envision a future in which you know, my young Latino brothers um, and, you know, people of all different backgrounds and races in this country who have never been a part of this very privileged mountain life thing that I've had going on could see themselves and have a part of it. Like that drives me. So um, for me, I do think that, you know, social media has, like you say, it does give you this, it has given me like a platform to speak about those things and um yeah you know it's like whoever wants to listen can listen and of course a lot of people are uh you know they're going to find their own people who who speak their language and advancing their values Uh, but for me you know i'm absolutely here to champion the cause of equality and i'm absolutely here to champion the cause of a sustainable future for our species on this planet yeah, I think it's important for, uh, you know, I hate saying influencers, but you're an influencer. That's what you do. And hopefully you can influence one human to make a better choice or to make, to think, you know, to stop and think. And, you know, just trolling your Instagram and looking through it, 
you're very outspoken about those things. And I believe I, you know, align with your beliefs and maybe other people don't, they can judge for themselves. But I think it's important for you with a platform, you know, 10,000 on your personal and I think seven or eight on your business side to just voice those things. So it's got to be uncomfortable at times. I'm sure you open your, you know, your personal Instagram to things that you don't want to read and comments, but is there ever a time that it's too much to manage? Like, do you, do you walk away from social media or do you just think it's important to like make those posts, make that stance and continue to like move forward? I mean, I think I don't really think about it that much. Like, you know, I'm like, Hey, whoever wants to hear what I've got to say is here and whoever doesn't, that's fine too. You know? So like, I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to say, how I see it but you know I'm probably not going to be very good about like reading all the comments and engaging back and forth like I would start to really just be too big a part of my life so I'm just like if I feel like I have something that is is like bringing clarity to like how I see a pr the present moment or a particular challenge that we're going through as a country or you know something that feels relevant then I'm just going to say that and I don't really I don't really worry or it doesn't bother me what other people say, like, you know, it, it, if other people are, you know, sounding off and like, you know, they're just on different wavelengths. Like, I'm just like, that's fine. Like that's, that's just, you just go be you. I'm just going to be me, you know? I, so I love that, that answer. I love that answer more than, you know, not that my opinion <laughs> matters, but it's refreshing <laughs> to hear like, this is how I feel. And if you don't, don't follow. Cause I think we forget that, that you don't have to, you don't have to watch. You don't have to read my captions. And, no. And that goes for other people, too, for people with things I don't agree with. You don't have to read that. I don't have to share that. I don't have to spread that. All I can do is spread something I do believe in or, like, be on what I believe is the right side of things. So it's it's a good hot take, and I really like it. And I think it's... I think, you know, to that point, right, I think that, like, in where we are today, we, uh, at least in this country, we, millions of people realize that we lived in a complete, we live in a completely rigged system that is not, it's not a democracy that works well. And um, the, you see that over and over again, right? Like when you look at like how Americans broadly feel about the climate and our future on this planet, like. Americans are really clear that a majority of them see that climate change is a real and present danger. But then if you go and you look at how we operate as a country and the decisions that Congress makes and the bills that pass and all that, you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense at all. You know, or you look at like gun violence, you look at like, you know, um, the way people feel about uh, issues of race, like Americans by far, by and large, they're, they're so much more evolved than their government. And so there's all this feeling like, what the hell is going on? How are we still here when all of us, by and large, as a, as a country, we are ready to make progress on these things? But that progress isn't happening because our, our democracy is very rigged and, and people really feel that. They feel that frustration. And so one of the things that I think that like is happening now is that people are finding communities where... They're like, no, I'm not crazy. And yes, 
certain things I do can matter because as voters, often we feel like a lot of what we do, I mean, I live in Wyoming, right? So like, I really live in, in a state that simply doesn't care about my opinion and my opinion never gets to filter out into, um, into the national conversation. I, ha- I have no voice that way. And I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. And part of what I want to do is like, hey, there are so many levers that we get to pull. We can speak. We can um, lend solidarity to. Um, we can spend money. Um, and we can not spend money in ways that reflect our values. And it turns out that stuff really matters. And that stuff's really starting to reshape the economy and and the conversation and the culture in ways that this you know, strictly, you know, voting part of our democracy just can't do. Yeah. And you spoke about climate change and it's a little, what, what we're going to talk about is a little dated, but in March, you, you know, it's hashtag crush it for climate. I think you rode your bike for all your errands, right? That was one thing. Uh, you rode your bike on a lot of ski missions. I think you wrote yeah. one other note, but my favorite note was at the end that was like, you know, riding my bike isn't going to change it. And this goes to your point that just me riding my bike isn't going to change the world, but it's something that you can do as an individual to help. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that starts to speak to this challenge that we all feel as, you know, privileged, you know, middle-class Westerners that like there's so much um, contradiction in the way we live. I love to travel and my parents live in India. My brother lives in Barcelona Um, and I'm always on the go. So like I by no means live a low impact lifestyle by the standards of the world. Um, But, you know, there are things that I can do that will, counterbalance those big impacts that I have. And I feel like for me, you know, like one one of the things I grew up with was my dad was really into not being wasteful. That was like this one thing that my dad was really, it was, that was like a really central idea. My dad grew up, you know, in, in a fairly low, low budget household in urban India. And not being wasteful was just like essential to surviving in society. And one of the ways that I feel like I've internalized that in my life is that like, if there are ways that we can consume less, then we just absolutely ought to do those. Now, are there also ways in which we consume more? Yeah, hundred percent, you know, like there are things that we do that contradict our values and that's a reality, but it's not going to stop me and it shouldn't stop us from also doing other things that um are more in line with those values i think sometimes there's this thing like well if you're not perfect then why do you even bother you know or if you do something that is in line with your values then it proves that you're um you know two-faced because you also do things that are not in line with your values i.e flying for example and things like that and you know that crusher for climate thing was a perfect way for me to be like well the things that i do and always do not just that month but like always is like i just don't drive around town pretty much ever um i just always ride my bike 
and I've got my bike rigged up. I've got a, a fat tire studded winter bike for riding all over in all Jackson winter conditions to the grocery store and everywhere else. And I love it. I just think it's such a fun way to get around town. I like having that little bit of time outside. So yeah, there are these things that, you know, we can do that are less wasteful. And that was, that was one of them, I guess. Yeah. It's fun that you said, you know, you didn't say the word hypocrite, but you, but you almost implied it. Yeah. I was looking for, you almost implied it. And it's nice that you, you shed light on that because it is, it is true. People call, you know, people love calling you out or like catching your bluff for call. And you're like, Hey, you fly Mm. over the world. And you're like, yeah, that's okay. You got to live your life and do what you can. But the, on the other side, you also have to do what you can. (laughs) So like I try to offset that as much as I can by riding my bike in Jackson when it's freezing, when I could easily get into a car. So I think it's, uh, I think we're all in fear of being hypocrites and, yeah, and you almost just said it's like it's okay to be a hypocrite. Just try your best, <laughs> which is like, I mean, that's not what you said, but it's almost what you you know, like just do what you can because that's all you can do is control what you can. Yeah, I I think the, I'd say like it's okay to be inconsistent. Like our lives can look inconsistent. There are ways in which we feel like we're just really not solving the problem we're just like a cog in the wheel and we're like shit this really should be better i should be a better ambassador for these things that i believe in and then there's other ways in which you're like hey look this is really something i'm very proud of and that i can do that lines up with my values and um i i think that you know being inconsistent or feeling like a hypocrite is a little bit part and parcel of living in a society that is governed by old white guys that don't line up with our values at all. And so just to participate in society, we're constantly tripping over ourselves. We're constantly doing things that we wish we weren't doing, you know? Um, And part of that is like, you get on and you accept it. And then part of it is you look around and you find like, okay, what are the ways that I could uh, evolve and do a little bit better, travel less, Um, you know, find alternatives to shopping on Amazon because I don't want to support Jeff Bezos. I, you know, that's not those, that's not aligned with my values. How, what are ways that I could live up to my values better, but not being trapped and feeling like, but I have inconsistencies. I've got a, I've got an F-350 in the driveway, you know, full disclosure, like F-350 diesel, it's a dirty truck. So, you know, that doesn't really look and sound like all of my values. I'm like, okay, well, one thing you could do is basically drive it as little as you possibly can. So, you know, it's, I'm just more okay, I think, with like, I'm just going to do the absolute best I can and I'm going to let that continue to evolve and I'm going to accept that I'm very, very far from perfect. No, I love that. I love your transparency. So thank you for that because it's it's refreshing to hear because sometimes you hear people talk and you're like, you know, I know that guy drives an F-350 or I know like, so it's fun to hear just you being real and organic and transparent and just being like, we're not perfect. And I think it sets a, a greater example than maybe you know. So thank you for that. Segue a little bit. Uh, We talked a little bit prior, you know, before we started recording about what you have going on right now and what you're like, this is what I think to quote you is this is what drives you right now. And that's the Samsara, Samsara, Samsara experience. Correct me on that, but tell us what that is and why it's important to you right now. Yeah, sure. Um, 
my work right now um, at Zamsara is really about, it's funny to say this, but it's really about human health, actually. And it's really about how, um, it's about resolving dysfunction that is a part of how we live today. And it all started with a passion for high performance. You know, I was um, a competitive athlete. Uh, I ran, I was a competitive trail runner and I went to the world championships of ski mountaineering in 2008 and just fell in love with being an endurance athlete of many different sorts and traveling around the mountains on foot. Um, and then I also fell in love with hard climbing and that's kind of strength side of the equation. So for me, it all really came from just being wildly passionate about like squeezing the most out of my body and, and um, figuring out what the control buttons were that helped the body evolve and change and really falling in love with that whole process of understanding that like, holy cow, we are so adaptable as a species. And you can take somebody, you can take yourself, you can stimulate change through training and you can become an athlete that you only dreamed of like that is so cool. It's such a rad part of being a human being. And in recent years, it's really evolved to be something that's a little bit deeper than that. And not just about high performance, but really just about resolving chronic pain and movement dysfunction. That is such a big part of our sports industry. Um, and for me, the deeper I dig into human physiology, and, you know, physiology is just like the study of systems and how the systems work inside our body to create change. So it's like you, you first you kind of start with like biology uh, and the individual pieces that contribute to um, our, our operating system as a human. And then physiology is sort of like the study of the of this of the processes that can drive changes um, and that's really for me where it started and just became so fascinated with how much is really understood about how um, we can fix our own problems physically, uh, resolve back pain, resolve uh, joint and, and tissue pain, and then evolve performance. But also what's really kind of taken my attention in that area these days is studying the evolution of our species and looking at how you know, we're aware of this academically, that as a species, we experience relatively little change in our environment for millions of years through all of the different um, kind of chapters of our homo evolution from homo erectus to homo sapien. And like, there's not an enormous amount of change until a couple hundred years ago. And really mostly in the last like 50 to 100 years, and we are accelerating change in our societies that's causing so much illness and pain, uh, aging, and all of these dysfunctions. And they're so deeply connected to the fact that we are running away from nature at a rate that we never, ever have, right? And our generation is more disconnected from the forces of nature that have governed our evolution as a species than any um generation in all of human history and when you start understanding that and looking at that in the broad stroke it really starts to become apparent why we are dealing with so much pain and dysfunction and when you talk about training really for me it's it's not achieving something external it's really about getting back to our innate capabilities 
that are woven into who we are as a species and how we've survived um, all this time and, and getting when we understand those factors, it really lends so much clarity to how we can train. So what is this, what does the program look like? Is it online based? Is it one-on-one coaching? Is it a workout plan? Is it a subscription, yearly subscription, monthly, weekly? You know, you don't have to tell the whole thing, but like, what does this look like? How does it work? Yeah. Well, it can be all of those things or, or many of those things. So, um, you know, at like, you know, for the athlete that's on the outside looking in being like, okay, you know, we have this, a lot of people who have, they've tried a variety of different training plans. Um, and they just want to like sort of test out what's happening at Samsara. You could just buy a training plan or a video program that you buy. It's $50 to 50 to a hundred dollars. You purchase it, download it, it's yours for life. And then you have the pieces to start getting to work, but you do it by yourself uh, independently. And then at the next tier up where you're like, okay, wait, that really moved the needle. I started to really resolve some of this long-standing back pain and this knee pain and my Achilles that's been injured for so long. Now I want to go to the next level. Then you, um, you join Basecamp. And Basecamp is our like, it's like, um, it's a full online portal of our entire training system. So everything that we've ever created that's helped us to guide athletes is in this digital portal. It's called Basecamp. It's hundred bucks a month. And once you subscribe, you have access to everything from the body weight strength training program to athlete IQ um, videos that really help athletes develop their athleticism and rebound to training plans. Everything's in there. And then at the highest level, it's the athlete team. And that's 50 athletes. We take them on once every three months. And it's a full on online community of people who are on a shared journey together of um, transforming their bodies. And that team is so diverse. It's crazy. We have we've had Olympic athletes. We had a guy who played for the Boston Red Sox. We have, you know, Olympic uh, marathon runner. We have, you know, dozens of professional uh, rock climbers, big mountain skiers, alpinists, that whole spectrum. But then we also have like everyday moms and dads um, and athletes who are on their own journey within whatever uh, time they have to resolve their injuries and transform their performance. And that's really like the bulk of my work now because we just invest so much in those athletes. It takes five staff to run that. It's three coaches and we're connecting multiple times a week to um, help you like implement changes to your training plan, solve for challenges. Um, we go on trips together. We just came back from Hawaii. So that's, that's like, a, that's our flagship, I guess, you know, it's, it's really like the highest level thing that we're doing and, you know, probably the most exciting thing that we're doing. How long have you been doing this part? A year. The athlete team is, um, has been going for one year before that it was just one-on-one coaching. Um, but we were like, that doesn't make sense because there's nothing to suggest that like humans become great athletes by themselves. That's just not how we work, right? It's not how we achieve anything in, in any aspect of life. So we just wanted to go from this one-on-one model to this community model. Um, but how do you not lose the individuality of keeping up with each individual? And that's what we've built. 
I think I know the answer to this question, but how important is mental health in relations to physical health? That's a great, it's a great question. I, I, I think they're just so inseparable, you know, and um, one of the things I find myself saying a lot on that topic recently is that like the best thing that we can do as athletes. And for me, athletes means every living human being. Like we are built as athletes. We are naturally explosive. We are naturally the most endurance oriented species in the history of the planet. Like we are born athletes. So one of the most important things that I think we can do as athletes is sort of make peace with our reality. And in our day and age, so much of life does not involve being physical. It does not involve being an athlete. It involves commuting and picking up and dropping off kids and sitting in a desk chair and smashing keyboards and, you know, typing on our telephones and all this stuff. So we've already got all of these ways in which we are living that don't allow us to fulfill our dreams of being physical. Um, and part of where I think a lot of difficulty comes from with athletes is an inability to accept the reality of what I've already committed my life to. Like I'm already a dad. I already own a business. I, um, you know, already I, I've got to travel and see family. I've, I got to commute, whatever those things are. Like we have to make peace with what is the role that being an athlete can realistically have in my life. And when I can make peace with that and say like, Hey, it's only going to be half an hour a day. It's only going to be two hours a week. It's only going to, but maybe at another point, it's going to be 12 or 15 hours a week, but whatever it is, you have to start with making peace with that. Um, because that's the window that you've got. And how can we make the most out of that window? How can we make it most enjoyable? How can we make it most, um, how can we drive the most change? That's a conversation we can have. But if the mental game of like grinding against reality and just feeling bad and being ashamed, feeling guilty and playing the comparison game, if that's where you're starting, that's the first thing that we got to resolve is like, we've got to get back to what capacity do you really have so that we can, we can succeed, right? Because you can write the sexiest training plan in the world for a guy or girl who's only got a couple hours a week and it's not going to be effective because it just never was possible to to do that much work so i think making peace with reality and and where you're at in your life is key and then you say okay well what can i do with this window that was a fantastic answer i don't know <laughs> if there is a right answer to that question but that was like I felt like I was in another place, like listening. I'm gonna, I can't, I'm gonna actually, like, I don't, you know, I don't always listen to all these back. I'm gonna, like, listen to that clip and be like, I literally felt like I was taken to another place and you were, like, speaking only to me. So I don't know if that's, you say that to everybody or what, but that was a beautiful answer and it felt extremely genuine and pure. So thank you for that answer. <laughs> oh, to totally, man. No, I mean, I get, you know, I get to work with, such, like I was saying, it's like such a diverse group of athletes. And that is that is where we start. Like if you join the athlete team, the very first thing we ask you is you break down what are all of the existing commitments that you have in your life? How many children do you have? Are you married? Um, what travel commitments do you have? Do you commute? What's your work like life like? And then when we get that picture, 
then we can start talking about training. But if we just start talking about training, it's so useless, right? Because we all have dreams and ambitions that can be very different than our reality. And then we just, you just drive suffering and, and you just make people feel guilty. Um, and that is, that's so not, you know, that's just so not productive, right? It's so short term. And I want to, you know, like, I really want to transform the way that athletes view their bodies and connect with their bodies and the connection between um, happiness and, and being an athlete, like, if training doesn't elevate your life experience, I really believe we're doing something wrong. That's a, yeah, that's a fascinating take. And I can't say I disagree with it in any way, shape or form. So, uh, I don't want to keep you for too much long. I know you're on a little time schedule. Uh, I want to ask you real quick, the brands you work with, uh, specifically Patagonia, how important is it for you to align yourself with brands that give a shit? for lack of a better term. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not a professional athlete. That's not how I make my living. It's not, you know, it's not what I do. So for me, it's kind of easy because why I'm not going to be partnered with an organization if it's if it doesn't have that like value alignment. Like, yeah, it's awesome to get kitted from head to toe with this beautiful gear but if patagonia as a brand wasn't like on the forefront and calling all of us as ambassadors to step up to a higher level of like thinking and living up our values it just wouldn't it wouldn't make much sense for me you know um so yeah it's everything it really is and um that's how i feel about patagonia i feel like signing on with patagonia is about like having the courage to be called to a higher version of yourself because they're always leading the way. They're always like one step ahead in terms of just being bold and outspoken about, Hey, no, we already said these were our values. So this decision right now to call out Jackson Hole mountain resort, for example, and say, Hey, we can't align with you because you're out there fundraising for the extreme right and climate change deniers. Like that's such an easy decision because we already said, we're a values-driven company and I want to be a values-driven person and I want Samsara to be 100% of a values-driven company. So to be a part of Patagonia is just a part of being like called to like, oh yeah, that's what it means to live out your values. It means you take bold stands and you turn down business opportunities or whatever it is to live out your values. And the more you just get connected to like what it is that you want to advance in the world, and you decide that that's really ultimately what you want to do, then those other decisions, they just become a lot easier. Those answers come easy, you know. And, you know, shout out to Faction. That's um, a ski company that has been supporting me for a bunch of years. And, you know, at every turn, that company has just showed its own way of being like no we're a brand that's going to align with our values and our values have everything to do with equality and everything to do with a sustainable future for the planet and we just hosted an auction they contributed loads of skis that we were able to sell off and contribute all the money to the doug coombs foundation um or coombs outdoors as it's now been renamed which is an organization that's getting young latino kids uh, into backcountry skiing and resort skiing and climbing and hiking and all these things. Um, so 
Hestra is another brand that's now getting really involved as a, another privately owned brand. That's that really goes a long way. Um, of, of, uh, really looking at that, at that quest for, for equality in the outdoors and, and, um, getting involved with projects that allow them to contribute to that. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are, it comes back to that earlier conversation that we were having of like, feeling like we lived in a rigged system, but realizing that economically we have so much power, uh, and we can spend money in a line with brands that, um, are doing the kind of work that reflect our values. Whether you're an ambassador or you're spending money, it's all the same. You know, you're all choosing. You're wearing a jacket. You're clicking in skis. Whatever it is, like those brands stand for something. So go find out what they stand for. And there's so many brands that'll align with, you know, making this world a better place. Some great advice from Z. Uh, tell everyone where they can follow you on Instagram, on Twitter, wherever you're, whatever social platforms you're on, and. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, absolutely, Adam. Thanks for giving me a chance to chat with you. Yeah, come follow us on Samsara Experience. We're on Instagram. That's about the only place we're on these days. But, you know, maybe in the future, we're looking at starting a YouTube channel. But, uh, yeah, Instagram for now. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Adam. That was awesome. Yeah. Tell me your life isn't completely changed now after listening to that episode with Z. Absolute dreamer, superstar in the mountains, and I love the way that he connects our bodies to nature and fitness and mental health. It's so much more than all that. So go outside, go for a walk today. I know it's cold, but make an effort. And, you know, you won't regret it going outside and giving giving yourself an hour to make a little change for yourself, for your body, for your fitness. So I think that was episode 37, if I'm not mistaken. Please like, share, subscribe, leave a review, follow at Mr. Adam Max. I'm still not at 6,000, so that's on me at this point. I got to make more memes, I guess. Follow at out of podcast. I think that's it. I think that's what we're sticking with. Follow those things. Do those things. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. I hope you go skiing. If you do, tag us in your photos. And I am your host, at Mr. NMX, and I will see you tomorrow.